This episode of Untold Stories is sponsored by BitPay. Stick around for more info about them later in the episode. What 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 is up, everyone? I am Charlie Shrem, and this is Untold Stories, where twice a week we dive deep with crypto's most influential leaders, especially today, to find out how this movement truly came to be. This show is powered by BlockWorks Group, a media company with over 20 podcasts in their network, including Untold Stories. Check them out at blockworksgroup.io. With that, today's guest is my good friend and crypto OG, Dan Larimer, the founder of EOS, the founder of Steam, the founder of BitShares, the guy who got into arguments with Satoshi in 2010. Oh my God, we talked about some of the craziest topics today, like central banking and the social experiment that is crypto and why it's, I, I really feel that if you don't understand Bitcoin or crypto, anything, if you listen to this episode, you'll come out of it like mind blown. Um, I just want you guys to get into this episode. Dan speaks very, very articulately with a lot of articulation. And um, I was very impressed by the progression in how he was able to convey his messages to us when a, a lot of times really brilliant people have a difficult time, my, you know, myself included, not that I'm brilliant, but putting things in our head down on, on paper. So uh, you really enjoyed this episode. I'm Charlie Shrem, and I'll talk to you guys right in a minute. But Dan Larimer, thanks, thanks for coming on the show today. Really appreciate it. And, I'll, you know, I've been very excited to talk to you. Yeah, it's good to talk to you too. You know, a lot of people like, I think even the judge told me, he's like, you throw shit at the wall to see what sticks and then you run with it. And I feel like I'm that type of person. And when I find something that is working or works, then I run with that. You're the type of person where you're the exact same thing. And um, in crypto, you know, as I guess we're calling it crypto now, but but in the in the industry, um, you've thrown a lot of shit at the wall to see what stuck and it stuck. And then, you know, you've um, have this motivation that I don't understand and I need I want to like dive into it because okay. that motivation that you have to build these amazing communities, but then to like want to build more where most people would be happy with the first thing you've done. Most people would have been happy with bit shares and um, that motivation. But there seems to me there, there's a drive with you. And maybe we can dive into that. Is there something from your childhood or uh, something that made you this way? Well, I'd say that the thing that's been driving me is the mission statement I've set out for my life. Um, I had an insight that, you know, I, I got really frustrated with the way that government uses violence to force people to do things. And I said, there's got to be a way to organize society on voluntary basis, on free market principles. That if, if the free market really is um, the thing that drives everything, then we actually are living in a free market right now. And that the things that we value, life, liberty, property, justice, it all needs to be provided by the free market. Uh, and that's uh, just choosing to believe that it could be provided by something other than government by force uh, and refusing to accept, uh, well, government's necessary. This is, you know, we have to do these things by violence is what's yeah. driven me to search for answers, right? I, I said, well, it's got to be out there. I'm going to search for it. And I'm not going to give up. And I find that a lot of other people give up too early. Like they, they come to a complex problem. They say, well, I can't think of any 
other solution other than to use force to make it happen. And I say, well, that's a cop out. You, you have to find a voluntary, nonviolent, cooperative way of achieving. I wish you told that to all the bullies society in school, right? Like it starts from there. Um, when you're a child, uh, we're taught to not look for the easy way out because then we get frustrated and we get, you know, we have irrational expectations and we resort to violence and the government does that. When, when I got into Bitcoin, I looked at Bitcoin as a more way for, to push my own like voluntarist agenda because I align with you on that on, I believe everything should be voluntary in that sense. But it's very interesting that you say violence because it's like me saying um, crypto will solve world peace. Now, I know you believe that and I believe that, uh, but a lot of people can't really think 10 steps ahead. So what are what are some ways that that this industry has been able to um, use crypto to to stop violence, uh, to make it a, a more free world that that we live in? Well, the way I found Bitcoin was um, I I recognize the power the Federal Reserve has. They they could print money, they could use that money to buy up the whole world and effectively drive all economic activity starts with them. Um, and if you wanted to have freedom, you needed to escape that dollar. You had to opt out of the dollar. And the the default of, well, let's go to gold and silver, didn't really work because you have e-gold. They had a company, they deposit gold, and they had a gold-based currency, and the government comes, shuts them down, takes the gold, and it's game over. So Most I thought, people don't know about e-gold, actually. When I first got into Bitcoin, too, I had read the stories but that the, all of eGold is largely suppressed. Most of my listeners are probably Googling eGold right now, uh, the precursor to, to the centralized precursor to Bitcoin. Yes, yeah. Well, the idea of eGold was just to go back to 100% reserve banking and, uh, and that would be great. The problem is that they attracted a lot of criminals, uh, just like Bitcoin. Uh, and even though they, they were cooperating with law enforcement to track things down and whatnot, they still shut it down because of the, the threat it had to reintroduce gold or to have people think in terms of grams of gold instead of something else. So I, I realized we needed a digital currency that couldn't be stopped. That the only requirement was that you could enforce the um, scarcity element of it so you could have a fixed supply. And that's what I was trying to invent and I was coming up with different things. And so I was Google searching to find out if anything existed. And that's when I discovered Bitcoin way back in 2008, 2009. Uh, and I said, Oh, this is amazing. Somebody's already solved it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I got involved immediately and started uh, putting together um, bounties for doing educational videos to introduce people to Bitcoin. Uh, and yeah, your famous quote is on T-shirts. Well, not your which, quote, but the quote that Satoshi said to you and also your <laughs> quotes, too. But all those quotes are on T. Like you can buy T-shirts at Bitcoin conferences with, you know, Dan Larimer and then also Satoshi Nakamoto saying to Dan Larimer, uh, I forgot the exact quote, but it was like, if you don't understand it, I don't have time to explain it to you. Yes, um, if you don't believe me or don't understand, I don't have time. That was isn't that funny how that kind by, of... Uh, I was questioning what the scalability of, of Bitcoin uh, in, in terms of fees and just looking at the fees associated even for centralized systems like banks. Uh, and so I was just asking these questions and Satoshi basically hand waved and said, if you don't understand how it scales, I can't explain it to you. Here we are 10 years later. 
uh, and Bitcoin is not scaling. Although I guess it's, it might not be original in his vision because we put a block size limit on it. But uh, fees are high, uh, and it's a big problem across all the different blockchains. Um, but fortunately, yeah. you know, with BitShares and Steam and EOS, I've created some of the most high-performance blockchains out there trying to solve the scalability problem. Economies of scale at the end of the day, because any cryptocurrency could be great at the beginning, but it, it, the ability to look out in the future and see how certain um, socioeconomic uh, theories play out, because now you have people that uh, are involved with real money. And so it's been fun to be involved in those communities of, of BitShares. Well, not as much BitShares, but largely Steam and, and EOS and, and watching these things play out. It's been fun. It's been great. Um, and Dan, I, I think... And if there's no one doing it, someone should. But a, a book can, can a book can be written about socioeconomics that just dives into and analyzes those three communities that you've created. But um, I wanted to to get your thoughts on that. But I you said something I wrote down. Um, you said the central bank, and you realize how much power they had. Dude, it's crazy. This morning, Jerome Powell's speech, or yesterday, it was yesterday, whatever it was. That was probably the most watched speech in the you know, not in the world, but. I didn't realize his speech affects the markets, even the Bitcoin markets, to, down to the minute. One guy. We're talking about centralized authority. People don't realize, like, our whole monetary authority, it comes down to one person or, like, a group of these older people who aren't really in touch with the world that we live in. So, Dan, the question that I have is, are you opposed to the concept of central banking like, what if someone had invented a way to do a decentralized stakeholder central bank? Is that something that, uh, at economies of scale, right? Like, because think with down the road, would work? Well, the problem with central banking is that it was a way of bailing out a the Ponzi scheme of fractional reserve banking. So you, you start off with these individual banks, and they're issuing more notes, and they have gold on deposit. Um, and eventually, those banks collapse in a bank run. Central bank has all the different banks create a cartel. So you have a lender of last resort and the people and the population in the area have no escape, right? They take money out of one bank. It goes into another bank. It's basically monopolized banking. And it really puts all of the risk onto the currency holders. Uh, you're basically, when you hold dollars, you're insuring um, the entire system against collapse, but you're not being compensated for it. In fact, uh, every time there's a problem, the money is printed and, and you're losing money. So central banking is effectively privatizing the profits to all the banks and socializing the losses across all the dollar holders. So you could put that kind of system on a blockchain, but a Ponzi scheme on a blockchain is still a fraud and it's still going to undermine the economy. Uh, and it can still result in centralized power. What you need is a... Um, a system of competitive institutions that all implement a hundred percent reserve. Uh, financial if there's a hundred percent reserve, then how is debt created? Because you need debt for credit and capital markets, for development, for growth. Mm -hmm. So how do you do yes. that in a, in a non-central bank model? Well, BitShares creates debt. Uh, it creates dollars backed by BitShares. Uh, it creates gold backed by BitShares, at least. It, it did when initially, and the idea is you post collateral and uh, and so forth. But the the problem is that if you 
make the mistake of assuming that a dollar backed by real estate, which is like how mortgages work, mm. is the same as a dollar backed by gold, and you make those two fungible, they're not. They've got different risk profiles. One is the credit of the bank uh, and um, and the the ability of the bank to make good loans, and the other is the ability of the bank to keep a piece of gold safe uh, and not be stolen. Very different risk profiles. But when you make them equivalent by law or decree or whatnot, uh, you effectively create fraud, uh, which makes people think they have a gold-backed note, but instead they have gold backed by real estate. And there's market fluctuations eventually over a long enough time frame, it undermines the currency. So all of these problems in the banking system are have a degree of fraud in the accounting and misrepresentation of risks. Uh, and, and they make their profits by hiding risks. Uh, they, they give you an asset that they don't disclose all the risks and they take all the profits. And then when the risks come up, you take all the losses. Uh, so you can still do loans. You just have to accurately classify a an IOU versus a uh, warehouse receipt, if you will. Yeah, I see um, what you're saying. And not treat them as fungible, which is what they do by law. Um, I think we're learning. Um, this is the first time that in modern in the modern world that we've had this like pandemic type of situation that I guess to take a step back this is the first time that the world has seen like something where the whole world is in it together. It's like those alien movies, right? You know, the whole world is in it together now. Let's all rally. That's a whole nother conversation on whether we did rally and how. I know you're smiling, but I, I didn't want to. It's not a COVID show. I don't want to get into it. But um, the reason I'm bringing it up is because you touch on something. And that is that what is true value? And the true value is what the market wants it to be. So I think what we're seeing now with gold, with crypto, and especially with the real estate is that those are things that have true value. Do you, do you agree with that? Is that one of the reasons why you think the real estate market is exploding is, yeah, the supply is low, but there's a reason the supply is those people value their real estate more than they did before. And then you have more people that want to buy it. All value is in effect perceived value. Uh, and the perception of value comes from uh, social expectations. Uh, this kind of a social contract with money. Uh, gold industrial use is very small, but the real value, the reason gold's perceived as value is, hey, this is an asset that is not someone else's liability. It can't just be created out of thin air. Uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are the same kind of thing. They're like, it's going to be really hard to convince an entire community to change the Bitcoin algorithm to increase the supply. So it's it's generally perceived as being scarce, uh, and so it has value. Real estate provides utility in a place people need a place to live. Mm. Uh, but unfortunately, I think for the case of real estate, its value is defined by how much people are willing to lend you to buy buy the real estate. And so as interest rates fall, real estate prices go up. And with the Fed keeping interest rates at practically zero, uh, there's creates very high volatility in the in the real estate market. And so people flood into it because it's a tangible asset, but it's a tangible asset bought with debt. And therefore if the lending standards increase or interest rates increase, the value of real estate can crash because people can't afford to to buy it anymore. So you have to be very careful about valuations of things when the central banks are 
uh, juicing that, that market with leverage. But even gold, I mean, even gold is the same thing. So like, what is the true value? How do we determine true value? It's the perception of things. But what you're saying is that our whole world is run like a Homer Simpson nuclear lever system where it's like, you know, Jerome Powell and the, the folks at the central bank at the federal reserve, sorry, can, can control debase our money. They can, can fully control us and, um, do something that may socialize the loss on uh, a wealthier person to distribute it to a, a non-wealthier person. And whatever you believe on that, um, at the end of the day, it amounts to theft. Um, is there any asset that, uh, actually has like a true unmanipulated value in the world today. And because tell me, I need to buy it. <laughs> well, even Bitcoin with, with futures contracts that are settled in cash instead of Yeah, ruined it. Yeah, as, as soon as you Sorry. do that, effectively, for that. they absorb the demand for Bitcoin with paper contracts. And then they have unlimited ability to print uh, uh, Bitcoin with the paper contracts. And then they can use the dollars to make good on it so they can never default. So since they have unlimited power in the dollar side of the equation, they can kind of manipulate the price on everything, which creates an insider's game. Uh, eventually it ends though, and it ends uh, in the collapse of the dollar. Uh, now, when that's going to happen, I don't know. I just, mm. something that can't go on forever won't because all these manipulations are destroying real wealth, uh, destroying real productivity impoverishing the nation even as it's concentrating the wealth and so there's this a lot of paper wealth huge gap in society now. right now whether it's stock markets or bonds or or bitcoin and at the end of the day when things get rough it's going to be you know food is what's going to be valuable uh because it doesn't matter how much gold or bitcoin you have if you can't get food then uh and water that's a real problem food and water i'm gonna get some chickens there you go. That's real wealth. Community, yeah. friendship, uh, independence is wealth. So owning a house outright without any debt, being able to produce your own power, um, having a network of people that can produce everything you need, that's wealth. Independence is wealth. Uh, everything else is dependence. And I think that's actually the problem we have with society is that we all trade dependence for better quality of life mm. so we're dependent on google we're dependent on the internet we're dependent on apple uh we're dependent on the government because it's uh, easy yeah and when you're dependent you're a slave and when you're a slave you kind of have to do what they tell you or they get cut off or or, or so on uh and, and that's the source of power and so you have to be very i'd say that's true wealth is is being independent uh owning your supply chain with a with a community around you I completely agree. Um, and the the most important part of that that I don't think people realize is the most important most important part is that is that social circle, uh, the social contracts, those people that, you know, even when it comes down to like if we talk about an end of the world type of scenario, the ability to barter with your friends and to have to know who does what. Um, but that independence and the social contracts, um, that really affects a lot. And I want to tell you something. Um, up until really bit shares came along the concept of community and the concept of or uh how how we look at cryptocurrency was always looked at as mathematics economics but what people don't realize is that uh especially with economics is that half of it is not the math half of it is is how the people 
who are involved in that uh, financial ecosystem or community, how they interact with it. That's so important. So up until BitShares, um, that was never really part of it. In fact, to uh, to prove my point in that, uh, there when Satoshi had written the white paper and all the code, the community I felt like was on the lowest his list of things that. Uh, to a point where he would say that if you don't, I'm not going to even have time to explain it to you, you know? So that was, Mm -hmm. so now you saw that how important it was to have a community. And so the community in Bitcoin came out of it. It just kind of like was created and for better, for worse. I mean, Silk Road craziness, whatever the people that got involved in early days of Bitcoin were the ones that uh, we were like the misfits, right? So yourself included. Um, Why did you see that power of community? What was that about that? Why did you say, we need people, we need involvement, we need the ability for people to interact with a chain instead of the chain interacting with the people. Well, well, early on, uh, even before BitShares, I introduced a concept of a community uh, that would opt out. It would have its own justice system. It would use Bitcoin as money, uh, have dispute resolution, uh, basically a voluntarist society with uh, concept of injustice insurance. The idea is that if someone violates your rights, uh, the other people in the community will make you whole. Uh, and that with those types of arrangements, we could kind of turn the tables on government because what government does is it focuses all of society on one person and no one person can, can bear the direct focused attention of government. But the government can't put that focused attention on everyone at the same time. So it's kind of like an insurable um, situation. So those are the ideas of community, uh, of bringing people together that I had even before getting into these things. And the other thing is as I was trying to understand the economics, the, the math of Bitcoin and, and the debating about inflation or token issuance and so forth, I introduced the concept that all blockchains are effectively decentralized autonomous uh, communities, companies, corporations. The concept of a DAC uh, was something I came up with. And then Vitalik picked up on it and uh. he was working at Bitcoin Magazine and wrote a series of articles on it. Um, but it, it started with me realizing that tokens are kind of like um, shares in a joint project uh, and that uh, they represent your contribution, your ownership, your influence uh, in it. And that Inflation for paying for things, whether it's block rewards or uh, community proposals or whatnot, is no different than a company issuing shares in exchange for taking capital in, Yeah, uh, which is actually what gave birth to, to Steam. I realized, how would you bootstrap a cryptocurrency in a community that had no money? Because mm. um, when we were trying to create bit shares and get it adopted, the sales pitch of, hey, put your money in this new risky asset it's a very tough sales pitch and it can only apply to people who've got some oh so you wanted to take it to the next level and st- okay this is a great yeah, progression I, I wanted to say well you know labor is value your time and attention is value what if we could issue tokens based on that it's it's a little bit more subjective than objective but uh that whole economic model the whole way of thinking about the economics around blockchains and tokens uh started with, with my analogy of uh, Bitcoin as a company um, that's issuing tokens to pay people to burn electricity. Uh, 
that is uh, that is the economic model that led to all the other innovations that I was uh, coming up with. Okay, come on. This is so cool. This is the new BitPay card that I have in my hand, and I'm so excited to be finally having the new one that just came out. Now, guys, I've been using the BitPay card since 2016. Yeah, you heard that right. Way before I started Untold Stories, way before BitPay became a sponsor of mine, I've been using this card, and it literally became a way for me to have a bank account uh, for many, many years, as, as a lot of people in crypto need banking, need better banking. The BitPay card is chock full of the coolest features. It's got contactless pay, uh, better rates and limits, no fees to convert from Bitcoin right onto the card, added in chip security. I mean, it's sexy. It looks good, unlike other cards. It's so easy to get. Just download the BitPay app on your phone, click the card icon, and you can do it right there. If you use the promo code CHARLIEJUNE20, your card is free. Remember, CHARLIEJUNE20. It's in the show notes. You can get a free card. So literally, just from listening to my show today, and make sure you actually listen, you can get a free card just by entering that code. So download the BitPay app, get the coolest card on the market, the best card on the market. I've been using it for over four years now. I know there are so many cards out there, but the BitPay brand is the oldest and longest running Bitcoin company in the world. I mean, that's who issues this card. This is the card you want to have. Remember, Charlie, June 20, download the BitPay app on iOS or Android to sign up for the new card. You're going to freaking love it. It's not as simple, though, as, as, as paying people tokens to burn electricity, because that's like looking at it from the opposite direction. But if you look at it from the other way, um, there was a, a need or Satoshi saw a need and enough people wanted that need, right, with Bitcoin at least, and yourself included, because you were searching for it for like a decentralized money or a, a, mm -hmm. a money or a bank that wasn't controlled by one entity. Um, and so I'm, I'm kind of happy that, that Bitcoin didn't <clears throat> put smart contracts and things like that on it because Bitcoin does what it does and it's its own social experiment. If Bitcoin fails, and I don't think it will, then at least we know that that was the social experiment. I know people are probably freaking out like Bitcoin could fail or whatever, but BitShares is its social experiment, Steam, is another social experiment. And I want to talk about Steam because that project was so, uh, <clears throat> it wasn't until, I have to be honest, it wasn't until Steam that I realized that, I think Steam was when I started to thaw my maximalism because it wasn't until then that I realized that you can actually, yes, have a working community cryptocurrency um, without a token sale type of situation that wasn't scammy or fraud. And so I saw that and I loved, uh, and I jumped into that community. And if you simply went on to steam it and you read the comments and you read the articles, everyone wanted to be there. It wasn't like anyone was forced to be there. It was a very, still is a, like a voluntary place to go. Mm -hmm. And when you have that, right? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, steam was a great experiment. Uh, it, um, it continues to be right. Mm -hmm. Even even recently, we've seen how a with community, Hive, and that's part of the experiment. Yeah, the, the community has uh, self healing properties even in the face of um, uh, powers that be. The, the large token holders operating against the the community. The community can kick them out and then keep going on their way and, and create a token that has more value. Uh, so it really demonstrates that the 
the value of the token comes from the community. And the other aspect uh, of Steam and what I'm also incorporating into things like voice is that a token should have its own internal economy. It should provide a good and service to the people that are using it. And it shouldn't necessarily overly concern itself with um, the rest of the world. Right? You don't need to have billion dollar market caps to have a successful local community currency. Um, and the billion dollar market caps is what incentivizes people to want to join those communities, unfortunately. And that's a double edged sword because mm. if people show up for the money, then they're going to act in ways that are all about the money and not about what the community is up for. Um, and one of the fascinating things that I learned with, with Steam, I had made the assumption that if you had a large stakeholder, that they would tend to vote for the benefit of the entire community and not in ways that would hurt the community. Mm. But Steam demonstrated that there are some jerks out there who care about growing their share of the pie, even if it shrinks the entire pie. Uh, and, and they're willing to hurt other people in, in the community to do so. It, very, very uh, enlightening. Uh, it was unexpected on my part. Maybe other people could have seen that coming, but uh, I had assumed that people's economic I mean, that was always a fear with Bitcoin is that one miner would become so big that they'd be able to take over and start to vote for uh, their own interests. But the idea with Bitcoin was that the integrity of the system would fail if a miner would do that. And then therefore, there's no incentive to do it because the whole thing would just fail. How is mm -hmm. that different with Steam, though? Um, well, it's the same kind of thing. Uh, some people, with mining right now, you have big investments in hardware, mm. which is effectively long-term staking. Uh, and that, that helps. And Steam actually introduced some of the longest staking terms out there. I remember. There, uh, which, in, in some ways, was the original. Oh, Steam and BitShares were the original DeFi. Um, the, I've, I've lost my train of thought here. No, we were um, talking. Uh, we were talking about with uh, with Steam, and I and I said like, how how is it uh, a different comparison with, um, or how is it the same comparison with one miner like incentivizing themselves instead of right. So yeah, right. So so the idea here is, uh, no betting wants to take control of the entire thing because by doing so they destroy the value of the entire system, uh, and this is sort of what happened with Steam Hive. We had one token holder who owned 20% or so of all tokens uh, and had influence with the exchanges. They took over Steam uh, and the community said, yeah, no, that's not going to happen. Uh, they airdropped a new token on everyone except for the people that supported the takeover. Mm. And the entire community got up and left, uh, which really shows how proof of stake can cut someone off and they can lose millions and millions of dollars. So it wasn't a profitable attack. Um, no, in the on, long on term, part. in the long term, if the experiment succeeds, the new token will be worth more. It probably is. I don't know. I have to uh, hive or whatever. But the idea is that maybe like you're looking at it in a short term way, like you, what you just said. You said, well, I didn't foresee this happening. But Dan, I don't I, I kind of think you did. And it's designed in a way where not designed in a way, but the community reacted in a way that was exactly how a community should react. Right. The community now. Yeah disincentivize that person. Sure, that person can make some short-term gains now, but their long-term gains down the road are gone because they could have, you know, that 
that airdrop potentially could they could have. Yeah, that's well, how I look not, at I, it. I did foresee that what happened with Steam to Hive, I foresaw. What I didn't foresee was some of the larger holders that maybe just yeah. the voting. You know, if I got a million dollars worth of Steam tokens and I'm going to downvote people and drive people away from the community and and vote up my my friends, uh, even though all those behaviors are counterproductive to the idea of rewarding people producing good content. They were not being benevolent governance uh, agents within the system, but instead using their power for selfish um, personal profit. Uh, and they weren't able to be effectively countered. So there's some unbalanced game theory in the in the Steam system. But I, I did say that that's, that's the thing with proof of stake systems and DPoS in particular, is if you have a public blockchain that's completely transparent and any one actor gets too much power and they start to abuse the community, community can do a user-initiated fork and cut them out. Uh, and, and that should disincentivize people from being uh, overly aggressive. And, and that's what Justin Sun did when he took over Steam. Is he said, I'm going to shut down your blockchain. I'm going to move it to my thing. And the community just said no. Uh, and and then there's just bad faith on, on the yeah. negotiations even. So it was a fascinating experiment. I agree. Books could be written on the um, on the lessons learned from BitShares and Steam and EOS. I know. I, I would love to write a, a book that combined that and also the socioeconomic lessons that I've learned when I was in prison and then kind of stuff that I've actually written and published on Steam and like kind of combine it all into this like the the my socioeconomic observations of the last 10 years in, in crypto type of book where I just like spit out or these conversations with you because that's what got me interested and that's what made me learn but i want to um before you comment on that uh so delegated proof of stake depos um i actually call it proof of brain and i know you do too it was in a bunch of the steam papers or whatever but um let's talk about consensus algorithms for a second what is delegated proof of stake and why did you um why do you attach yourself to that why do you lo love it so much and why do you think that's the the ultimate consensus algo I don't think it's the ultimate algo. It's just the one of the better algos we have uh, at the time. The I, idea really just derived from how corporate governance works. You have shareholders and they elect the board, and then the board runs the company. Uh, and so it was from my analogy of Bitcoin or blockchains as a decentralized autonomous community company, whatever, that I... So well, we can just encode the same types of governance processes that occur uh, in any company into establishing the people who are going to be running it. And it really solves a lot of, uh, it makes the, it makes decentralized decision-making possible. On Bitcoin, there's governance that occurs off-chain um, and you have exchanges and all these parties getting together and trying to figure out what they're doing and then backstabbing each other and then forking the chain. It works really, really well on, uh, for, for Bitcoin in the sense that a fork's possible because it's just money. Mm. But when you've got uh, something that's not just money, but it's got, say, movie theater tickets, right? You can't fork that chain and create two showings for the same movie. One of them has to win. So you have to come to... Oh, I see a, what your point is an agreement on the one chain. And so 
uh, it's really about building that governance onto the chain so that people can at least verify that the governance process was followed and that it is derived from the power of the, the token holders or the yeah. shareholders um, yeah, in the system. And that keeps things decentralized in the same way that proof of work can be viewed as delegated proof of work, which you throw in mining pools, right? And, yeah. and so with Bitcoin, you've got three, Bitcoin and Ethereum, you've got three mining pools. They collectively produce over half of all blocks. Um, and in any confirmation window, they're producing uh, much more than half mm. on average, which means you have three people that are taking turns uh, producing blocks and but they it's control. different though delegated proof of work doesn't give you like any voting power mining pools can just mine uh you look at when it comes to voting for like segwit and things like that the pools uh people can pull their mining their miners away and we saw that happen we saw a huge shake up mm -hmm. in that and delegated proof of stake is the same thing you're you're, yes. you're delegating and block producers um so to continue that it's progression like, it's like electing your mining pools yeah Exactly. Oh, yeah. It's exa so, so, okay. So explain that now, like, this is what I'm getting at. So you have 21 people or 19 people. It depends on, you know, uh, different blockchains that adopt DPoS can, can change, you know, some of these metrics around, but the concept of, a, of, of, of staking and then delegating your staking power to voting on someone, uh, is direct democracy essentially for better or for worse. Like Switzerland has it in a way. Um, mm -hmm. did you look at that as a yeah. model for, for this? Yeah, it's, it's got a, it's more of a shareocracy than a democracy, right? Democracy would be based on per person instead of per token. Mm. But yeah, it's effectively like the the same concept is that it, you've got economic skin in the game and your influence is proportional to your skin in the game. Uh, and it's really no different than how companies are governed. So uh, continuing with the with that progression now um, and with Steam and, and everything you learned from Steam and BitShares, um, when you are conceptualizing EOS and, you know, then you had a, an amazing team, all, all the people and at block one, um, um, what, how did you view that as like the next, do you view that as, do you view EOS as like the next step in that natural progression, uh, of this experiment that is cryptocurrency? Yeah. So EOS was born out of a desire to be able to build applications faster. Mm. Uh, so it, it took me, you know, I had to build an entire blockchain for BitShares and that took a year. And then I re wrote BitShares 2, which was really enhanced the performance. And that took another six months. And then I did uh, the Steam blockchain and that took uh, you know, six months. But the contracts that BitShares implements and that uh, Steam implements could be implemented on EOS from a smart contract perspective only. Uh, in weeks instead of months. Uh, and then by opening up the platform to allow anyone to deploy their own code, you can have lots of different people contributing pieces that then all interoperate. Uh, and we can upgrade things faster in the field because we can reach consensus on code changes without having to have a hard fork. Uh, and that is incredibly powerful because anytime we wanted to upgrade BitShares or Steam, we had to get all full nodes to upgrade, and it was a real challenge. But with EOS, we were able to do the vast majority of upgrades and enhancements just by having the elected block producers deploy a new system contract. Uh, and then no one had to upgrade their full nodes uh, because all nodes are just running this uh, virtual machine. And that 
created a very powerful way of uh, having a network that can evolve and adapt and and grow. The difference here, though, was that with BitShares and Steam, you were, in a way, the leader of that community. Um, and, and with EOS, I think, and tell me if I'm wrong, I think you realized that the EOS community has to be bigger than you. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, well, in all all these systems, I realized the community had to be bigger than me. Um, and it's it's interesting to, if I look at what happened uh, with BitShares, the community, I built the community and I was still learning the economics, right? And so I, I initially started- Still are, we still are today. Yeah, I started BitShares with the idea that it should be a fixed supply with deflationary. Uh, and uh, but then it wasn't sustainable because there was no revenue source. And then it turned into a, a situation that, well, how is any one person supposed to spend their time uh, and support th- themselves for years to work on a project? They're contributing their time, their label, which is value, but not getting value. It's like voluntarily working return, for a company yeah. and they're not, they're not paying you cash. They're not paying you stock. What are you doing? So the BitShares community uh, was still stuck on the, we got to have a deflationary. That's the only way the token price goes up and therefore we're not going to invest. And so I was effectively booted from BitShares by, you know, they wanted me to stay, but they wanted me to stay for free. It's a good uh, thing that they, that you get kicked out of stuff though. It's like, great. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I, got, I created a community and they kicked me out. That's like the best social experiment right there, right? Exactly. You get rid of the, get rid of the leader. Kind of like Satoshi leaving Bitcoin. Uh, well, and so, then the same thing happened again on, uh, on Steam. I, I created Steam it, but, you know, gave Ned 51%. Um, and then I got kicked out. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's a fascinating to see how a community can get can be built around a set of ideas. Like at the time I found the community, I said, these are my ideas and my thinking at this time. And then as my thinking evolves, community doesn't necessarily evolve with me. And then they eventually take me out. And the same thing happened with, uh, with Steam. Uh, and with EOS, we said, well, I'm going to build the software. It's the like when your parents kick you out of the house. Itself. Right? <laughs> What's that? It's like when your parents kick you out of the house, but I interrupted you. What did you say? Yeah. Yeah. I said with EOS, you know, the community is going to have to launch it from the very beginning and they can make uh, make it what they want to make it. I'm just creating the tools to empower the community. Did you do that? uh, Because you didn't want to get kicked out again? You just didn't want to get kicked out or something again. So you said, I'm not going to put myself in that position. (laughs) (laughs) That's part of it. Uh, (laughs) And the, the other part is there's just, um, it's a lot more dangerous for the creator of technology than it is for the users of the technology, right? Satoshi's yeah. was probably very smart to stay hidden and anonymous. Um, yeah. But and, you know, and as time evolved and government started waking up to the potential of this stuff, it's just gotten increasingly dangerous for the founders of technology to exert too much control over it. I completely agree, and and so I'm you know I'm really happy to not that I'm happy that. It, no one cares that if, if I'm happy or not, but it's it's great to see uh, these like natural progressions and and how um, the communities have played out and grown and, and what we learned from that uh, is so important. And I forgot to I wanted to ask you on Depos about um, or just kind of hear your comment is that I don't know if you, I mentioned proof of brain in that uh, delegated proof of stake and with Steam and BitShares in the beginning was uh, the first way 
uh, that the that the industry saw a harnessing of brain power into cryptocurrency value. Yes, yes, particularly with Steam. Mm-hmm. How can we further uh, push that? Because I really believe that cryptocurrency needs to be fully autonomous in order for it to succeed in that the toll booths that we have now that connect us to the fiat world, um, eventually they're not going to be there anymore because our whole economy will be able to support itself with its own capital and credit markets, with its own revenue sources, with its own industry. As we see with DeFi, for better or for worse, with DeFi, the industry finally has a revenue source because now we have people from outside who are lending money against real estate say, okay, now there's a reason for me to use cryptocurrency. There's a killer app. Because it cuts all yeah. the, the, the bullshit away. Well, it, it all comes down to governance. Um, and the problem with all proof of brain subjective things is who's making the decision what has value. And mm. how do you prevent them from uh, using their power to just graft and take money for themselves? Like, How do you evaluate this contribution? And, and in a company, the CEO has employees and they... Uh, they're evaluating the employees and the employees get fired if they're not producing work and they're not following the direction of the CEO. Uh, And if the CEO was just issuing a bunch of shares to pay himself and diluting all the other shareholders, he'd get fired uh, and uh, or arrested for fraud or or something like that. But in in cryptocurrency, there's this mindset that everyone's anonymous. And when they're operating under this anonymous umbrella, they say, well, if if the code allows it, I can do it. Uh, and they, they feel like they're not stealing anything because I'm just playing by the rules of the game. Yeah. Uh, and that's the real challenge. And so it boils down to a question of governance. And that's actually what I've been spending a lot of my time thinking about is how can we create a system of governance that um, fairly represents the people that is not subject to abuse um, and, uh, and captured by a minority? If you look at Bitcoin or BitShares or Steam or you know any of these systems, they all tend to centralize into. Well, they start decentralized and then they centralize. But what if a project launches saying that we're going to be centralized now? Like for example, I work with this uh, this uh, central bank project out of Israel called Saga, and their idea is that they're going to have a board now be this like decentralized central bank, but then. At the vote, which is going to be, I think, in a few weeks, the whole founders are all being kicked out. It's like being done on purpose in a way to prove that concept. Well, you know, just because you're voting doesn't mean you're decentralized. Mm. Uh, you know, in the United States, wait, got... expand on that. What do you mean? <laughs> well, take it. Yeah, this is democracy. Is the idea that you know of a government of, for, and by the people, and the idea is you vote, but the algorithm that you use to vote. To reach consensus on who your leaders are is um, is critical because otherwise it can be the wrong algorithm can be captured. So we've in the United States have been captured by the two party system, uh, and the two party system is basically just collusion to by groups of people, the parties, to control the, all the different spots. It'd be like token holders colluding to control all the block producers uh, in, in a particular party. It's now that no longer cool governed by the token holders or the voters. It's governed by the party leaders. And you only have two choices, you know, bad and worse. Uh, so how you cal- calculate the vo- votes, how you measure the opinions of the people, uh, 
directly impacts whether or not you're going to centralize effectively control, just like mining pools centralized control, just like ASICs centralized yeah. control. Remember that. Um, so there's this constant tendency to centralize control. And we need to build new governance systems that keep control decentralized. And particularly, I guess, when it comes to governments that maintain the power to secede yeah. uh, and prevent the formation of parties or collusion. Uh, and that's why recently I've been advocating my uh, randomized hierarchical representative voting, uh, which is a new consensus algorithm that I think can scale from small communities to billions of people uh, and ensure that incumbents don't take power and that no political parties don't form. Uh, and that it actually is a truly democratic process that favors people that are the best consensus builders instead of I the best. I want to understand uh, this. Promises. Can can we go into a little bit more? I, I I would love to understand that 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 new consensus theory. Um, and then I do want to talk about and then when you talk about that, lead into voice.com because you took all of this experimentation and learning and created this social network. And I want to understand like how have you applied these things? Sure. So imagine uh, if you will that the art of governing population. It's kind of like maybe chess, right? Let's assume that chess was a, an analogy for it. Uh, and that China and the United States are going to resolve our disputes in a chess match. And so the country needs to figure out, well, who are we going to send as our representative to play a game of chess against China? Well, if you use... Uh, now, assume for a moment here that uh, chess is a game that no one ever actually has the ability to play because it's just, just politics is that way. Who, who, can, who can play international politics and, and practice it, right? And who can do repeat it and try it? So it's, it's very hard. So most people are rationally ignorant about it because they, can, they can't use it in their real life. They, uh, and so they know very little about it. So we're going to host an election and we're going to elect the best chess player to go play against uh, China but everyone is, all the politicians are just, they form parties and they talk about their armchair chess players, right? Yeah. They talk about theoretically the best way to play chess. They've never actually played it and people are supposed to vote on them and they're rationally ignorant. They don't know anything about it. So we're going to use that process and we're going to you know, elect somebody like Trump to go play chess against China. Uh, people say, well, that, that's not going to work. You're not going to get the best chess player by asking a bunch of people that don't know how to play chess to elect a chess player. Instead, what you want to do is you want to have a tournament. Uh, you say, well, let's get you know, randomly assigned people who want to uh, be president. If they play a game of chess with, with somebody, the winner goes up, and then you randomly pair them up again, and you keep doing it until you find the best chess player. And that would be a, a tournament-style selection of the best of the best in, in the community. Uh, and that person's much likely to have really good skills of playing chess, not theoretically being the best. Uh, unfortunately, for something like politics, uh, there's no way to play a one-on-one -on -one match on that. But if we yeah. found a different metric uh, that, that had similar, let's say there's a skill set that you wanted to have, that you wanted to select for. And the one I came up with is you want to have the best consensus builder somebody who can get agreement from the most people as possible. So 
how can we create a game of consensus building and have people play that game just like they play chess? The person who's best advances and they play it again and again and again until the president is the person, not the person who gets the most votes, but the person who can build the most consensus. Um, and so the idea is, is simple. You take a population, you randomly assign everyone to groups of 10. Within each group, you have to pick a representative from your group to represent the group. And you have to do so with a two-thirds of majority. And if a group can't reach consensus, then there's really no good consensus builders in that group. Yeah. So they don't get to... It's like a chess But isn't match the lack of consensus consensus? Like the fact that you don't have it is consensus in and of itself? Yes, exactly. Uh, it's, it's like a, a chess match where there's mm. no winner. It's a draw. Uh, so it's effectively saying that we're going to... Def- default, it's better to go with everyone else's consensus than our group, because our group just can't agree. So we're going to default to everyone else. And with 100 million people, you can do that in eight rounds, and you can get an entire hierarchy of, um, of leaders that are various skills at getting reaching consensus. Uh, but you have no more political parties, you have no campaigning, you have no finance, you have no gerrymandering, you have no uh, mudslinging or identity politics. Uh, you don't even have to pay attention to the news. All you have to do is get together, meet with 10 other people, uh, have a discussion and assess which of these people do you trust the best or is, is uh, most articulate and promote them. And if you don't see anyone that you can trust in that small setting, then you don't promote them. You can actually talk to your representatives because there's only 10 of them that you have to consider. and that's and they're accessible but this is so if you talk to your representatives what about just one of the first things that i think of is that how do you have a fair shot at 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 that when um the potential rep can see uh like your staking power or your involvement in in the in the space and they may choose to ignore you or whatever oh they can choose to ignore you but you're in a group of 10 and uh, and it's constantly changing, right? Every election, you're oh, in a different group yeah, of yeah, 10. Yeah. That's so, so cool. So it prevents collusion. It prevents getting trapped uh, with someone that don't, doesn't represent you. And it's really a way of taking random sampling of, of the opinions of the population. Okay, so let me um, see if I understand this right. Essentially, my city of 100,000 people that needed to vote for like five city commissioners... The concept—it's very radical. I love this idea, though. The concept, very basically, without getting in—you know—is uh, that you're grouping people into random groups of ten, and then each of those ten just have one vote, but it's still a vote of ten. But they have to consensus choose their vote together, and they're voting for one of their members, not somebody outside. Oh, you, you oh, can only for one vote of their for members in your group. So, if you and I ended up in a group together. We would have to pick either you're going to represent us or I'm going to represent us. And if we can't agree, we don't get represented. Uh, and and then, then if you're represented now, you have all these representatives now of groups of 10. Is that the number 10? Is that uh, and then these people now, a number? It's, it's a uh, number. It's, you know, you can do different sizes, but 10 is enough that you can actually it's like have real a world block producers. That would be so cool. You absolutely, you could use this to like block producers. You can do this for moderation of, of content on social media platforms, right? Uh, because you take Is that those, how voice.com works? 
we're working on applying a, a governance model like this to voice.com, yes. Um, so the idea that, you know, if you have 100,000 people, you divide them into groups of 10, after the first round, you've eliminated 90% of the, of, of the people, and now you've got uh, 10,000 people. You do another round, now you've got 1,000 people. You do a third round, now you've got 100 people. And you do the fourth round, and you've got 10 people. And that can be your, your commissioners, right? Uh, and, and then you do that every year. It's a different thing. So you can't have incumbents get in there because you know, what, what are the chances that a group of 10 random Americans would pick Trump or Biden to represent them uh, with a two-thirds consensus? <laughs> Relatively small, <laughs> yeah. I would think. Um, so a lot of the people that get into power today probably wouldn't even pass the first, first rung of the test. Uh, and as you go up the rung, you, you gain more increasingly competent people who can actually have real debates and philosophical discussions. Uh, and you don't drive away all the people that don't want anything to do with politics because they don't want to campaign. They, they just don't, don't want to deal with it. Eye. I love it. I would love to see something like this, like, uh, done in practicality. I would love, I would love if block one or someone could, uh, essentially like, get a little a little city or a town or village to agree to do an experiment um, because uh, blockchain and voting is such a, or like governance, taking that crypto governance and putting it into like real world governance is such a big deal, but maybe we're not ready yet. Maybe there are all these consensus algos are still all experiments and we have to see how they play out on the internet before we see how they play out in the real world. Do you, do you agree with that? That's the power of social media. It allows you to, employ governance in an area where it's uh it's yeah. still important you need governance you know you got to ban content you got to get rid of uh the people posting uh illegal content if you will uh you got to maintain community norms you got to define community norms of what's acceptable what's not acceptable or the toxic elements of society will come in and and just destroy the community so you need governance and it's a, it's a way where you can experiment and it's kind of isolated and people can see how it plays out and if, and if it can play out well on social media to create a fair environment that represents it's not censored by like facebook how they censor and whatever zuckerberg says it's like you allow the community to elect the leader who and and a set of leaders so it's not just a top leader you've got layers underneath them that can have various degrees of power over the governance of the platform and it and if it can avoid getting entrenched and turning into you know, oh, this is uh, a permanently libertarian. They've completely captured the system. Yeah. Uh, you know, or like Wikipedia, you know, in theory, it's supposed to be democratic, but they've got a political process that's entrenched. The status quo is in control. Yeah, there are that. companies that you have to pay, that you can pay. Like if you want to go right now and edit something like an article on clouds, you know, you couldn't do it because there's like a hierarchy, an editor, whole theocracy or whatever now. And so you, there are companies that you'd have to hire as consultants just to edit one word of your own Wikipedia entry. It's insane. But um, I know. Yeah. Dan, Dan Larimer, thank you so much for coming on the show today. What title do I even like you're I just say Dan. I mean, Dan Larimer. I don't even need to say like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <That> <laughs> thank you so work. much. Thank you so much. It was great talking with you. Yeah, this was so cool. And I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>